You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Turn to Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11. We'll also be back in chapter 10 just a little bit. Uh, we've got one more week of the book of Hosea, then we're going to go back uh, to the book of Acts, and uh, we'll be back in the book of Acts for several weeks uh, into the summer. There are several things uh, that we learned as children that we didn't have to relearn. Um, I remember a particular lesson that I learned the hard way. Um, my, I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was maybe a precursor to what my first career was going to be as an electrician, but I had this curiosity with receptacles in our house as a kid, and I can remember my dad telling me many times, do not stick anything in the receptacles. Uh, but curiosity got the best of me one time. I don't know, probably right around 8, 9, 10, somewhere in there, and I can distinctly remember unfolding a paper clip because I knew a paper clip could fit into that outlet. And I didn't understand how you can plug something into an outlet and electricity, how it worked, and how a TV or a light bulb would burn. But there had to be something that I needed to find out on the other side of that receptacle slot. So I took a paper clip and I unfolded it just perfectly. Now, of course, I didn't stick it in the side where there is no power, the neutral or the ground. No, I stuck it in the side that is, that is hot, that is live. And from this day back to that day, I've never had to be told ever again to not stick anything into a live electrical receptacle. As a matter of fact, uh, kind of a side note here, they redesigned receptacles, so I don't know, probably 10 or 15 years ago, just to prevent that from happening, because you'd be amazed at how many kids have done exactly that, either sticking a fork, a receptacle, or a paper clip, or something into a receptacle. Isn't it amazing? that uh, the things that you were told as a kid, you some of those things, many of those things, you never had to be told again. That's not because you don't need guidance. It's not because you've learned everything. It's just because that some of those things that you learned as a kid, you never have to relearn. You got it. You, you kind of focused on that you, you got to look both left and right and left and right before you cross the street. The things that your parents told you that maybe at the time seemed a little foolish, you got those things. Maybe it was in your a teenager, you finally got it. Or maybe it took a little longer, but you finally got that there were certain things you shouldn't do and certain things that you could do and why you did certain things. A disciple, a disciple, if you could, if you could boil a disciple down to the very core of what it is, a disciple is a learner of Christ. In other words, someone who is following Christ, often we think of, of discipleship as someone who is following Jesus. Certainly, certainly that is included. But we are learners of Christ. When you look at Jesus and the disciples, the disciples spent day after day after day not only hearing what Jesus taught, but also watching his life, observing him, and, and then living by the same precepts or attempting to that Jesus did. It's, it's a lot like repentance if you think about it. Uh, being a disciple of Christ has within it the connotation of repentance, which means that, that I let go of my current way of understanding my life I give up control over my life, and I give that control over to someone greater than myself, and I become his learner, living my life and patterning my life after him. But here's the thing. 
and, and maybe you haven't thought about this, but, but discipleship doesn't just happen within the Christian faith. Did you know that there are things, movements, ideas, worldviews, that are attempting to disciple you that may be in complete conflict with what God's Word says is true? The question really is, is, is who or what is training you? Now, we've been talking a lot about idolatry, idol worship, the, the thing that has become a master in your life, the thing that, that you love more than God, that you cherish more than God, that you follow more than God. What is that thing in your life? And did you know that it is discipling you? That it has, you have become a learner of that thing, whatever that thing is? Hosea and his household are living illustrations of the tension between God and a nation. This nation that had been called out to God, called out and set apart unto God in a covenant relationship, there is tension and there is strife between God and His people. Hosea and his wife, Gomer, and the tension that is in that marriage, and not only the tension between Hosea and Gomer, but also between Hosea and the children that are part of this home, uh, they are a living illustration of of God's tension and relationship with His people. Now, up until this point, we have looked at both a balance of, of God saying, I'm going to judge you, I am going to hold you accountable, while at the same time, God's saying, I love you and I'm pursuing you and I want things to be restored between us. And, and lest we begin to think of God as some benevolent old man up in heaven who, who just kind of overlooks our sin and just kind of kind of overlooks these places where we begin to devote our lives to something other than Him, I, I want to pull you back to reality and help you to understand that, yes, God is both love, but He is also just. That God is also, He, he is perfect and He is holy, and, and He loves you with an everlasting love that we just sung about. But I want you to understand that God will absolutely, positively hold you accountable, and He absolutely bring, will bring pain into your life. I don't want us to read Hosea and think that God is some kind of, I don't know, squishy, benevolent old guy who just winks his eye at whatever you do. Because you got to understand that, that Hosea is telling this nation, this northern kingdom, that they're going to be judged. And in fact, they are judged by the Assyrians, a pagan nation who is going to come in, overrun them, take them captive, and spread them all over the world. That after Hosea finishes his ministry that Assyria does, in fact, judge them. That they, they become a rod in the hand of God, and God brings judgment. Now, there's going to be a metaphor shift. We, uh, a metaphor is, is an idea that God uses as a, as a picture, an illustration to say, Hosea and Gomer are, are going to be an illustration of God and His nation. The, the attention is going to shift a little bit in, in chapter 11. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. He says here, when Israel was my child, was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So the attention is going to shift now from Hosea and Gomer to the children. Now, if you remember, these children, probably, possibly, the result of Gomer's infidelity, that they had interesting names. That if you turn back, turn back to chapter 1 briefly if you don't mind. Just turn back to chapter 1. I want you to see this before we kind of get into this today. Verse 6, it says that she conceived and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, 
for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. And then in verse 8 it says, And she weaned no mercy, and she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Now go back to chapter 11. So there is this part of the metaphor where God says that he's no longer going to show mercy, and these people are no longer his people. And then at the same time, within the same context, God says, Now I'm going to offer forgiveness to you. And that's what Hosea's ministry is all about is that God is going to give them an opportunity to repent. Will they turn over their lives back to the God who loves them, or will they continue to pursue false gods? This son, as referred to in chapter 11, kind of refers to the entire nation of Israel. That, that God has given a son to the world, and he's, he's separated this son from the rest of the world, from Egypt, and they were separated as his people. And this son had been given a set of instructions. We, we know it to be the law. They make their way down to Sinai. God speaks through Moses and speaks to Moses. And Moses is given a set of, of precepts, a set of, a set of laws on how these people are to live as God's people. And, and these laws were set up for three main purposes. These laws were to teach the people how to love God, how to love their neighbor, and how to live as a people separated from the rest of the world. If you look at all of the law, all, all possible parts of the law, you will find that every one of those laws either helps the people love God and worship Him, love their neighbor as their self, and to set themselves apart from the rest of the world. The Israelites were to be a peculiar nation different from everyone else around them. And as such, be light to those nations who are bowing down to the stones and rocks and moons and suns and everything under the sun. That was the purpose of the law, that they would live differently. The problem is, is that these people are no longer loving God. They've mixed their love with God for love of idols. They're no longer loving their neighbor. They, they've become so focused on wealth and comfort that the poorest of the poor of Israel in the northern kingdom are suffering. And they look just like every other nation around them. There, there's no difference between them and the Canaanites who were living right next door to them, who were worshiping all kinds of false gods, whom they were supposed to drive out hundreds of years earlier the worst has happened, and the northern kingdom looks just like every other nation. Did you know that being a disciple of Jesus has exactly the same aspects to it? That following Jesus, we are to love Him, and our life is supposed to look like we love Him. And not only that, as we love Jesus, and we follow Him, and we listen to Him, and we obey Him, and we surrender to Him, and He's Lord of our life, then we love our neighbor as ourselves. We love our spouse. We love our kids. We love the person across the street. Regardless of the color of their skin, we love them as Christ loves us. And then we look radically different than the rest of the world. What's interesting, and I hope you've picked up on this theme, is that in the book of Hosea, one of the things that Hosea is dealing with over and over again is how that the people become prosperous. They had all the food that they needed. They had all the wealth that they needed. And yet they were corrupt. And God begins to remove that blessing, and they begin to suffer. It's amazing how God has provided everything that this northern kingdom needed, and yet, and yet they turned their back on Him. God has provided everything that you need in your life. And yet... 
we have a tendency to worship something less than Him. Should not following Him be our only response? If He's given us life and food and provision and health and all the things that He's given us, should our response to Him not be to worship Him and follow Him? Let's look at chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. God, when he called the nation out of Egypt, if you remember when they went into Egyptian, when they went into Egypt under Joseph, when Joseph's family went into Egypt, it wasn't under slavery. They were free people. But when the Pharaoh changed, they became an enslaved nation. And the nation grew by numbers, but they were enslaved completely to the Pharaohs. And there was not a nation on earth. There is not a leader on earth. There was nobody on this planet that could set the Israelites free from their bondage. If God had not intervened, if God had not used Moses, and God had not intervened by His direct power and His direct intervention, there is nobody who could have set these slaves free. Even though they were greater in number than the Egyptians by the time they're set free, they were enslaved, they were afraid, there was no way that they were going to be able to rise up against their taskmaster. So God says, this nation is my son, and I'm going to set my son free because I love him. And they are to be my representative in the world. They are to represent me in a world that is dark and full of idol worship. No one could have set Israel free if it had not been for God's intervention. Look at verse 3. It says, Yet it was I who taught Ephraim. Ephraim is another way to refer to the northern kingdom. There's a tribe named Ephraim, but in this context, he's referring to the northern kingdom as a whole. He says, Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. God says that his involvement in his son's life is just like your involvement in your children's lives. Fathers, you remember when your children began to walk, right? You remember what you had to do? You, you would kind of grab them by their, by their hands and they would take their little hands and wrap them around your fingers and, and they would be able to try to walk and you keep longing for that day you're going to be able to see them walk without your help. God says this is exactly what He did for the northern kingdom of Israel. He says, I took you in my arms, I held you by the hands, and I taught you how to walk. When did God do that? Well, remember that Israel was not a nation inside Egypt. They were in bondage to a greater nation. So the, the kingdom, the nation of Egypt, or Israel, was not a nation inside Egypt. They were bond slaves. But as they leave Egypt and they begin to make their way across the Sinai Desert to the Mount Sinai where they're going to receive those precepts and those laws, God provides for them. He takes care of them. He blesses them. He protects them. He parts the Red Sea. And little by little, the people should have should have recognized that God is their father, and he's a good father. He said, I held your hands. I taught you to walk. I took you up in my arms. I cared for you. I loved you. I, I revealed myself to you. I, I showed you that, that there's nothing else on this planet worth worshiping other than me. He was a good father. Look at verse 4. He said, I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bit down and I fed them. God, God kind of uses another illustration here as, as though this is a, a, an animal, his son, and, and he's caring for that animal, and he's taking care of it. And he says, look, my burden has been easy. My yoke has been easy. My burden has been light, and I have taken care of you. 
I released you out of your bondage, out of the yoke of slavery, and separated you unto myself, but I, I took care of you. And I guided you. And he says, I, I was easy on their jaws. In other words, it has the idea of a, of a horse or an animal with a bit in its mouth. And, and God says, you know, I, I eased up because I knew you were hurting. I knew you'd been in bondage for 400 years. And I, and I knew that it was going to take time for you to recognize that you're a nation and that you're my son and now I'm your father. So what did God do? God showed incredible patience with these people. You know, it wasn't long after they left Egypt that they began to complain. They began to look back. And they began to think, wow, man, we had so much good food in Egypt and we had everything taken care of. And, and here we are out here in this wilderness and we're not, not really sure where our next meal is going to come. And we're not sure where our home is going to be and we're having to live in tents and out in this terrible place of, of, of desert and, and lack. And they begin, to, they begin to look back at Egypt. But isn't that exactly what our, what our children do at times, right? Isn't it what we did? Even in spite of all the blessings our parents have poured out in our lives, we tend to get whiny at times. This is exactly what happened with Egypt and, or with Israel. And, and God says, I led you with cords of kindness and bands of love, and I eased up on your yoke, and I, and I bent down and I fed you. God is wanting them to understand that they are His Son and that He is their Father. But yet they kept turning against their Father. The same, the same mentality that was in Israel right after they left Egypt has infiltrated the entire nations for hundreds of years, and even in spite of God's love for them, they keep turning back. Go back to verse 2. Even though they were his child, a son, caught out of Egypt, verse 2, the more they were called, the more they went away. The more they were called, the more they went away. The more God blessed and the more God loved and the more God pursued, the more they kept sacrificing to Baals and burning offerings to idols. There, there is something down inside of us that that within our flesh we desire so much to be in control of our own lives that even in spite of all that God has given us and the more that he gives and the more that he blesses and the more that he answers prayers we have a tendency to run towards that which isn't God at all look at verse 3 he says yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. Time and time again, God intervenes, heals, provides, and loves. But they didn't even acknowledge it. Sounds like a, sounds like a child who is, who is spoiled, who always wants more and more and more and more, but is never thankful for what they have. Does that sound familiar? This child, the son, has received all the blessings and as such has become a spoiled son. And all these hundreds of years of God's patience and God's love, and yes, God has judged, and yes, God has called them to hold accountable. He sent prophets. He spoke to them, and He says, I want you to turn back to me, but if you don't, you're going to pay the price. Look at verse 7. He says, My people are bent on turning away from me. Why is that? What is it? What is it about us that that we have a tendency to turn away? And, and make me, let me make sure that we understand each other. 
we're not just talking about the nation of Israel here. I hope you see that. That there is a bent inside of us that we will pursue that which brings nothing but destruction in our life, all the while thinking and all the while hoping that somehow it's all going to turn out good. And at the same time, God is pouring His blessings out into our lives. Even if you are lost and undone and don't know Jesus, you've never surrendered to the gospel, you are the recipient of God's blessing day in and day out. He says they're bent. I'm turning away from me. And here it is. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. You see what's interesting? Is they're calling out to him while at the same time worshiping false gods. Isn't that interesting? I don't know when they were calling out. I don't know exactly what the circumstances were, but it's interesting to me that at some point along the journey, there are times where the northern kingdom has maybe a, a shake the cobwebs out of their head for just a little while, and they'll call out to God. Maybe it's when the droughts came. Maybe it's when they lost all of their crops. Maybe it's when things begin to get hard. Because remember, what's turning these people towards idolatry is comfort. It's, it's, the, it's the indulgence of the flesh that they see the Baal worshippers doing, and they join in. It's that pursuit of the fleshly desire that is leading them away from God. But there are points and times where they call out to God, and God says, you know what? You're a spoiled son. And the only way that I'm going to be able to get your attention is to bring some correction into your life. He says, you're going to have to be corrected. You're, you're going to have to come under the punishment that you justly deserve because it's not until that point that you're going to see me for who I really am, that I am in control of your life, that I am your father, and that I will correct you. Look back at chapter 10. Go back to chapter 10, verse 1. Look at this first verse. It says that Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Now this, this verse 1, it sounds, like, it sounds like that Israel is a, is, a, is a fruitful vine that is producing fruits unto righteousness that bears witness to the fact that they are God's people, but that's not what it actually says. You see that luxurious vine? It actually means empty. An empty vine. What, what does that look like? Well, up where I'm from, up in Wilkes County, I don't know if you guys have it down here because I haven't seen it, but it's probably around. There is a horrible, horrible vine called a kudzu vine. And this stuff grows like crazy. It, it'll overtake an entire forest if it's given a chance. And my mom and dad's property where, my, my, where I grew up, there's a valley down beside their house. And in that valley is nothing but kudzu vines. I mean, it overtakes the trees. And it's a lush green vine. It looks like it's a healthy vine, but it bears absolutely no fruit. And it destroys everything in its path. This luxurious vine, it, it makes the nation of Israel, northern kingdom, look as though everything is going on. In the early stages of Hosea's ministry, if you looked at the northern kingdom, you would think, wow, this is a blessed, blessed group of people. Because they have fruits, they had vegetables, they had all that they needed. But if you look right below the surface, you'll find out that they were empty. There was no fruit. And the very things that God had given them, they had turned over to the worship of a false god. 
the scary thing is is that there can be the look of help, but at the same time be empty. There can be the imagery that everything is fine, when in fact, look at verse 2, their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and will destroy their pillars. And you know how he's going to do it? Through the Assyrian army. The, the fact is, is that the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, are being discipled by that which is not God at all. They were meant to be disciples of God who lived differently as a result and then impacted the people around them. But something else has their attention. Something else has their heart. And they're being discipled by that. Remember. The very base of what a disciple is, is is a learner. They're learning, but it's not at the feet of God. It's not in His Word, in the practice of worship, or in His laws that set them apart, that love God, to love neighbor. This is all eroded away. Yet at the same time, things look great. But they're anything but. Once upon a time, there was a family, typical American family, father, mother, daughter, son. And they were your typical Southern family, which means that when the church doors were open, they were in church. The churches they attended had Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and that family was there every single week without fail. There was a time where the older sibling, which was a daughter, um, she, she always got perfect grades. Uh, she was uh, just a brain in school. I never had to worry about getting anything less than that. It just came easy for her all through school. Great grades. Graduates high school, and throughout that time in high school, she, she realized that she, she has a knack for art, uh, whether it be oil paintings or. Uh, pottery or clay whatever medium it was chalk whatever uh, pencils all the different mediums she had an incredible talent for art and and during that time in high school just became very very good and and through a series of events was able to get a scholarship at a large secular university to be able to go study art now at age 11 at age 11 this daughter put her faith in jesus christ Followed that up with baptism. Parents modeled faith in front of them. The, the parents modeled what, what following Jesus looked like, but as far as intentional discipleship, not a lot. They prayed together, but that's about it. Uh, maybe before meals, but they went to church consistently. So this adult now goes off to college. I've been in church her whole life. Whatever the teenagers were doing, she was involved. One semester, one semester at this university, the first semester she just happened to take philosophy and world religion. Two classes, philosophy, world religion. After 16 weeks, 16 weeks at this university, she basically turns her whole life over the secular worldview and turned away from the faith. Just like that. 
20 years of going to church, 20 years of, of hearing the gospel, 20 years of hearing it taught, 20 years of seeing it lived out in her parents' life, and in one semester at a secular college, she determines that Christ, the church, all of it is foolishness. And all these years later, she has a disdain. I don't know if it's hatred or not, maybe but will not step foot in a church. How does that happen? How, how is it that being a disciple of Jesus for a period of time in her life and in, in less than 16 weeks completely walks away from everything she'd been taught and modeled in her life, how is it that she could do that so quickly, so easily. And you may ask the question, well, does that mean she's born again and lost her salvation? No. My, my idea is, is that she was never actually born again to start with. You see, she's become a disciple of, of someone else. That philosophy teacher and that world religion teacher, no doubt, said to her and all of her classmates that Christianity's a joke. The Bible's a fable. You need to embrace a new worldview that says, live for you. Throw off all these constraints of religion. Throw off all these ideas where it keeps you in this little box. Throw all of that out. You live for you. You're the center of your world. You grasp what you want to grasp, and you live how you want to live, and you embrace whoever you want to embrace, and you embrace whatever lifestyle you want to live because it's all about you. That's what she heard. And you see, it was all about comfort at the end of the day. It was all about her at the end of the day. And it's been like that ever since that semester. I don't think there was ever a heart change to start with. I'm, I'm not so sure that she became a disciple of Jesus Christ on that day. You see, she became a disciple of the culture. Something else got her heart. Something else got her attention. Something else had her focus. And, and, and the driving force of that was her own personal comfort and, and what her flesh wants and what she desires. That became central. And trust me when I tell you, there are plenty of prophets and plenty of priests that are out there teaching this garbage that it's all about you and you just need to embrace it. You hear it every day. And my, my goodness, how many disciples there are of a false god who leads down a wide path that leads to destruction. Turn over to Colossians chapter 3. You see, discipleship is not just something that's happening inside the church and should be happening inside the church. No, there are disciple makers all around us. And they're trying to get you to buy into some ideology where it be a political ideology or, or, or a sports, uh, uh, something about a sports and buying into that and making your life about that. Your life can be about all kinds of things other than the Christ who redeems you. Or if that's not the case in your life, who will redeem you if you surrender your life to Him? Look at Colossians chapter 3. Paul speaks about this. Let's just start at verse 1. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. My, my. 
Paul is dealing with exactly the same thing with the church at Colossae. He says, if you've been raised with Christ, if you've been born again, if, you're, if, you're, if you have received a new life, then seek the things that are above. You know why Paul says that? Because there's all kinds of things below that you can seek that you can become a disciple of. He says, well, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You see, Christ being all over all and being that place of authority and place of power, set your minds on things that are above, not on things of the earth. You see that contrast? Things above. Where God sits and Jesus the Son sits at His right hand. He says, for you have died. You have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, and you'll also appear with Him in glory. In other words, future blessing, future kingdom, the fruition of all that God has promised will come about. Look at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, look at this, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Paul says exactly what Hosea is saying. Hosea has been sent to the northern kingdom to say, if you guys don't turn, the wrath of God is coming. Set your mind on things above. Set your mind on things that you know are real, the things that have blessed you, that God has poured out His love. He taught you to walk. Turn back to those things. If not, then the wrath of God is upon you. Notice those earthly things. Paul could have listed. He could have listed a hundred things here. He only listed a few. And he says all of these things can become idols, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. All of these things can be idolatry. Any of these things can be idols. And, and, and Paul says, turn your eyes upon the throne, the king, your Lord, who gave you life. He says in these two, verse 7, you once walked and when you were living in them. In other words, you once walked in them and you once lived in them. Sounds like discipleship, doesn't it? A learner of Christ lives in Christ, walks with Christ. He says, you can't have it both ways. You once walked in these things, don't walk in them any longer. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, here's some more. Slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, saying that you've put off the old self with its practices. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So what is an idol? What is an idol? Anything that you love more than God. Anything that gets your time, your emphasis, whatever, whatever gets your full attention day in and day out, that is what is discipling you, and that is what has become your master. That's what is your learning. The thing loved or a person loved. It's the thing that you treasure, the thing that you pursue more than God. We become its learner because we become, it becomes more of a value to us than Christ does. So let's talk about that a little bit as we close. Parents, Father's Day, I mean, we need to think about how this plays out in our home. Maybe we're talking about grandkids. Maybe we've got teenagers. Maybe we've got... Maybe we've got college-age kids now. You're in that stage, and you're beginning to see, and maybe you see the same thing as this story 
this illustration that I gave of this of this young person who put their faith in Jesus only to go to college for one semester and walk away from it all. Maybe you've got that in your house. Maybe that's in your home. Well, let me give you a few things as we close. First of all, this generation of kids, teens, 20-somethings, 30-somethings, whatever the age is of the people you have influence on, let me, let me ask you a question. Are you living at home what you profess at church? This is critical. I can't tell you how many teens down through the years that I've talked to, and when we get into their faith and we get into talking about following Jesus, they say these words, well, it doesn't mean anything to my parents because my parents are engaging in this throughout the week, but they come to church on Sunday and they play the role. But during the week, let me tell you, when I, let me tr- trust me when I tell you, they are not following Jesus. So if they're not following Jesus, why should I? Look, live at home what you profess at church. What I mean at church, I mean here. There should be no difference in what you're professing here and what you profess at home. Secondly, Take a measurement of the time, money, and investment in the areas that aren't related to Christ. Measure those things. Take a look at at where your resources are going. Is it going to a sport? Is it going to an ideology? Is it going to politics? What is it? Is there something that has got your attention more than Christ has? And maybe we need to step back and we need to evaluate a little bit in our lives. Why do I give so much time, effort, energy, money, resources to this thing, and this thing has nothing to do with following Jesus? Third, parents, you are the primary disciple makers. Even even if your kids have moved out of the house, you are still in that role in their life as an authority. Just as much as they needed to know when they were a kid not to stick a paperclip into an outlet, Just as much as they needed to know not to touch a hot eye on a stove and just as much as they needed to know not to look both ways before crossing the street, they need your influence in their life that Jesus has made all the difference in your life. They need to hear about the prayers that He's answered, the times that God has intervened. They need that in their life right now. Desperately bad. They need to know how to follow Jesus. doesn't matter if they're 35 or 5. They need to know that. They need to see that in you. Finally, God was intentional here. Do you see the intentionality of God sending Hosea, asking Hosea to marry Gomer? Do you see how intentional God was? You know why he was doing that? Because he loved those people. You're going to have to be intentional because God is wanting you to use you to influence your kids, whether they're lost or born again, whether they're playing a part, whether they're just going through the motions, or whether they truly came to faith in Christ and they're wandering back off into the world. Regardless of where they are, you, dads and moms, have got to be intentional. Being around the church doesn't make you a disciple any more than being in an NFL game makes you a football player. It's got to be more than just what happens here for one hour on Sunday morning. It's got to be a day-to-day following of Jesus, loving Him, loving neighbor, and looking different than the rest of the world look. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your goodness and Your kindness, and we especially thank You for Your patience. My goodness, Father, if it wasn't for Your patience with me, not only in the way I love my wife and the way I parent my kids, but Father, just the way I followed You all these years, and failed over and over again. If it were not for your patience and for your grace, you would have cast me aside a long time ago. But Father, you've been consistent all along this journey, and I'm so thankful for that. And it- 
Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist. 